Uh, we are that, uh, in, in a part in, uh, we're in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, which is just flat out one of my favorite chapters, not just in this book, but in the whole Bible. It's just a, it's, it's not, it is like, uh, not just a great story from the Bible, it's just flat out great literature altogether. When you have, when you take literature classes, you have to learn all these principles of literature, like this thing called Freytag's Triangle, where they have all these different parts of the story. Uh, about heroes and quest and uh, protagonists and antagonists and minor characters and all these things. And this story is like a, it's just beautiful. It has all of those things and it, all of those things are playing so well with one another. Uh, not to just tell a story or to give us a moral or some moral lesson, but to teach us about the beauty of Christ. So love, love, love this story. Um, so here we are, David is, we are fresh out of, last week, David was tempted uh, with killing Saul to advance his agenda, and just fresh from that save in the cave, we are now back almost in the same boat, where David is presented with a new problem that's really not so new. So let's read and see if David has learned the lesson about taking his salvation into his own hands, or if he needs some more instruction from the Lord. I'm going to ask everybody to remain seated. This is a long reading, uh, but let's pay careful attention to the reading of God's Word. This is a long passage. I can't reread everything in the, in the, during the sermon, so the better you pay attention to the reading, the more you'll understand what I'm saying when we're talking, okay? So here we go. This is God's inerrant Word, for Samuel chapter 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. And then David rose and went down to, into the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Well, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, peace be to your house, peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did, no, we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were with us in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give us whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. And when David's young men came, and they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited, and Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? And so David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. And yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the field, so long as 
we were, uh, so long as we went with them, they were a wall to us, both night and day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. And then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I'll come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. So do to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who followed my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, then my Lord will have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there would not have been left to Nabal so much as one male. And then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. And so Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. And so she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out from Nabal, his wife told him all these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And after, then about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. 
And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. And she rose and bowed her face with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given his, Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was in Galim. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, it's a long, long story. Um, so, one of my favorite pastimes when I get to watch a little TV or YouTube actually is to watch. There's, the, there's this company that produces these uh, computer generated. Uh, air disaster videos. I have this thing for like watching air disasters. And uh, I was watching this. This is one I watched this just last week uh, of a near miss between two Japan Airlines uh, heavy airliners, a 747 and a 787. Big, big planes. Uh, and they were heading on a collision course for one another at an angle like this. And uh, because of like basic mistakes that the air traffic control had made, they were calling commands out to the wrong flight number, so no one responded. Some of the commands they didn't hear. And it wasn't only until the last minute when they have these in-cockpit alarm systems that just started blanging, blaring this klaxon sound out that just says, dive, dive, dive. And one of the pilots took that warning seriously, shoved the plane into a dive, and they missed each other. In the, vi- in the video, you can see it. They missed each other. One flew over the top of the other plane less than 100 yards at 30,000 feet. So close, one of the planes had to immediately land from damage due to the jet wash of the other plane. The people, they interviewed people on the, on the plane afterwards that were describing the experience of watching a 747 pass less than 100 yards overhead, 30,000 feet over the ocean. <clears throat> what am I telling you that story for? This plane's from... They have these alarm systems uh, that are meant to restrain the pilot from catastrophic error. And they go off and tell these pilots, what you're doing is catastrophic and you need to stop right now. And that one pilot, praise God, took that seriously and put the plane into a nosedive at the last minute. Uh, and the, the, the beauty of that, what I'm trying to get at, is that that's God in our sanctification, in our walk with Christ. There's also, God is also doing, does similar things to us. He, in the midst of our sin, in our foolishness, in our short-sightedness, in the dimness of our vision, in the twilight of our sin, He often sends restraining grace. It's one of the more startling and beautiful parts of our sanctification that God, in control of all things, is often restraining us and sending warnings and keeping us from 
breaking down as badly as we would without that. Uh, and man, I mean, I got stories like that. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about stories where God stepped in and like saved me and I had no idea that that happened. I'm talking about the stories where <clears throat> after the fact, I looked back at it, someone had like shown up and like spoken to me and then after the fact, I realized, whoa, I was just about to make a crazy mistake. That was a close one. That is part of, in his God's providence of his restraining grace, protecting us from our own foolishness. And that is what's happening. That is what's up with David in this story. He, uh, he has just gotten finished with learning this big lesson about taking matters into his own hands, about personally taking revenge and not waiting for the Lord uh, to come through with him. And then right after that, here we are, next chapter, and he's just marching into battle, acting like he didn't learn anything because he's blinded. But God, in his faithfulness, sends restraining grace, this time in the form of the wise and discerning Abigail. And so that's the story we're going to read today. The big idea or, that we're going to look at is that in the twilight of our sin, God sends restraining grace in the form of people and in the form of promises. In the twilight of our sin, God sends restraining grace in the form of people, and also in the form of promises. Let's look at that one part at a time. First, in the twilight of our sin. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I think about sanctification, when I think about growing in holiness, the Christian life, even though I, I basically know better, I still like envision, I have this vision, this dream of the future, where I will someday like reach this level of, of mastery over spiritual discipline or walking with the Lord or, uh, you know, um, or, or even willpower in some sense and form where I am like, I am like, like modern coalition warfare. I will be able to amass these uh, uh, unbeatable forces and then march on this area of sin, completely wipe it out, plant my flag in the ground as conquered territory, never to look back again. <laughs> Victorious. That's how, when I get honest, I think that's how it should look. I don't know why I think that, but that's how, uh, if I catch myself, I'm always looking forward to that day. But the reality is, sanctification, the war, the struggle of our sin is not like modern coalition warfare. It's way more like trench warfare from World War I. World War I warfare, the brutality of the land war in Europe was these guys were in, lined up in trenches a hundred yards from each other or less and they spent years going back and forth across the ditch, taking taking an area one day and being beaten back the next, being strong one day, being completely overrun the next day. And in the fog of war, without communication, just in confusion, going back and forth and back and forth. And, man, have you noticed? Have you noticed that it's kind of like that? You make gains, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're overrun. You think, man, I got that beat, and then, boom, out of nowhere, the same sin bounces back up. It's way more 
like trench warfare. And that is David's reality too. Look, last week he's tempted to personal vengeance uh, in, in these big picture ideas, this, in, you know, in God's promises of the kingdom and the kingship and, and the Messiah and all these big picture items. And, he's, and he has the ability to restrain himself. He does the right thing. And this week, uh, some Yahoo, some a powerful rich guy, but a guy just insults him personally. He completely loses his chill, forgets all about what he just learned, and is marching in to take vengeance and take matters into his own hands. Look, look at what he does. Verse 31. I think this is 31. Yep, no, verse, uh, verse 10. And so Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Crazy insult. He just said, you're a runaway slave. And, and not just completely disregarding everything that David had done for them in the wilderness and said, I'm not going to do anything. And the word railed really means shrieked. He like screamed this at these guys. Uh, and David, this is, this is part of the literary beauty of it. Listen to this. Listen to the repetition. And so David came back. David's young men came back, told all this to David. And David says to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up. What are they trying to impress upon you? They are mad. They have completely lost their chill over this insult. And David is dead set on killing every single one of them. How does this happen? He did so good last week. (laughs) And this week totally blows it. Why is that? The circumstances are a little bit different, but it's the same thing. He is taking personal vengeance, working salvation. Text says that three times. uh, On his own, refusing to wait for the Lord to, 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 to vindicate him. Why is it like this? Why is it like this for David? Why is it like this for us? It's because the reality of our lives is not, we are not conquering generals in the charge of coalition warfare. (laughs) Massive, organized militia fighting sin. We are uh, really in in the twilight of the world of sin. Our vision is dim. Our spirits, our ability to understand spiritual things is, is very low. We are not like the angels. We have a, a certain understanding of God, but it's very, very limited. We are operating, the Bible over and over again says we are operating in darkness. There's the crazy images of the, the, of the new age when the sun will be you know, brighter than seven times shining in the sun. Those are all like symbolic things for the dimness and the darkness uh, and the confusion of the sin that we live in every single day will have been abolished. But right now, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know only in part, but then, new heavens and earth, I shall know fully. And so the reality, our reality is, we live in shadow, we live in twilight, we live in partial darkness. We are not conquering generals. We are utterly dependent creatures. 
And so why, look, why does God want to show this to us? Why does God show this to us in David, the man after God's own heart? Why does he do it in such a way that we have to identify it with it and say, that's me too? The reason is this, and this is what I want you to understand, is that it, it, God wants us to know that he understands our condition. You may think you're a coalition general. God knows you're in the trench. There's so much comfort in that. Think about it. Why? When we blow it, major blow it, you get so bent out of shape, so overwhelmed with guilt, so overwhelmed with shame. Part of it, little part of it, is because we're sad. We have godly sorrow, but the bigger part of it is, or a big part at least, is we're mad that we're not coalition generals. <laughs> It betrays the fact that we really believe that's how we should be performing. And when we're not, we're guilty, we're ashamed, we're afraid. Psalm 103 says this, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, that's how God sees us, as children he is unleashing compassion on, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame He remembers that we are dust. God knows you're not glorified yet. We can can know that too and understand that. It doesn't mean that we make peace with our sin. It doesn't mean that we dismiss sin. It doesn't mean that we minimize sin. We constantly struggle against it. But we struggle against it knowing uh, who we are as creatures, as fallen creatures, knowing that God is orchestrating all of these events, the the victories, the time when he lets us hang in that sin, struggling against it and failure. God is allowing that to happen for his purposes because he loves us. He's growing us. He is strengthening us and creating in us uh, the beauty of Christ's likeness. So we don't have to trip. We don't have to be overwhelmed with guilt when we fail. We can rest knowing that this is That's reality for everybody, even David, even the patriarchs, even the matriarchs, even the great men and women of the faith that we're all in the same boat. That's why God wants to show us these things. And part of that orchestration is uh, God's support for us in his restraining grace. That's the second part. God sends restraining grace through people. And look, we do, we see something different about David's heart here. We've, taught, we've come across this before uh, in earlier chapters when, when uh, God really sent people to warn and admonish Saul and Saul just dismissed them for what he wanted to do. And, and even before that, uh, in the, uh, I think it's chapter 8, we preached a sermon about when Israel wanted to make Saul king and the big idea from that chapter was that, that they, were, they, they were trying, they wanted the wrong king they didn't want God's blessing for them. They wanted a king who was going to do what they wanted to do. Uh, and the big idea from that sermon was that whenever we're ready to run after the wrong king, God will always send someone to warn us. He sent Samuel to warn Israel, or Israel totally dismissed it. Saul totally dismissed all the warnings of God. But David, God sends someone to warn David, and he listens. 
So listen, what happens? Unknown servant, another part of the literary beauty of this passage. Some unknown guy saves the day. He doesn't even get a name. He's just random servant goes and tells the, the, the uh, goes tells Abigail as the lady of the house who he knows is wise and discerning. And Nabal, Nabal means, in Hebrew, means fool. <laughs> and it's kind of hard to understand, you know, why a child, why parents would name their kid fool. But <clears throat> it may be like a play on words. But anyways, that is his name in the story. His name is Fool. And, um, and it, it presents him, he's so worthless. He's so recalcitrant. He's so hardened. The young man knows he's he's not even going to try to talk to him. But he goes to Abigail instead. Abigail uh, takes matters into her own hands, loads up the donkey, and single-handedly brings all these presents to David uh, and does all these amazing things and saves the day. And at the end of it, David says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. He listened. He heard what Abigail was saying. If you do this, you're going you're to have pangs of conscience for the rest of your kingship. What you're doing, you're acting just like Saul right now. You don't want to do that. You want to keep your integrity Trust and wait on God to avenge you. Wait on God's timing to do what God's going to do. And he hears her. But here's the thing. Does David hear her because he's smarter? Because he's wiser? Or does David hear her because the Holy Spirit is operating, working in his heart as he hears this truth and helping him to understand and listen, and in so doing, sending him restraining grace. That's exactly what's happening. There's a, there's a scripture in Galatians. It talks about our war against the flesh, this war, the internal war against flesh and spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That really is implying that the Spirit is also inside of us restraining us from being as bad as we would be otherwise or as making as much a mess of things as we would be doing otherwise, that all of it is in God's orchestration and control, which is comforting. Uh, you know, think about a time, think about a time when you have been completely convinced that you were justified in doing that. Usually, maybe getting somebody back or telling somebody the truth that they need to hear. <laughs> you know, or withholding something. I'm not going to talk to him all day. Sometimes Nisa will say to you, me, if you do that, I, when you get to heaven, I'm not even going to talk to you. If you kill yourself, that's what it is. When you kill yourself, when you get to heaven, I'm not even going to talk to you. Uh, there, in my early ministry, uh, and people, look, people hurt us, right? People hurt us. They say awful things. They, we get a, we, our, our pride is insulted and wounded and it hurts. Or we're afraid what they do is going to hurt us or things that we care about and love. And we have that tendency to respond retaliate, retaliate. 
In my early ministry, there was a couple who I trusted, put a lot of trust in and hope, and, and ended up, they ended up betraying us, using us for, to get a better job, and then throwing some hand grenades into the church on their way out, hoping to blow it up so they wouldn't have to worry about it after the fact. That hurt so badly, I wanted to publicly humiliate them as a pastor. And I had someone, God sent someone, who came and sat down with me and said, don't do that. I know this hurts, but don't do that. You'll have pangs of guilt on your conscience if you do that. Let's wait and let's see what God does. And in retrospect, I can see that story and be like, wow, that was a close one. (laughs) That was a close one. That's God's restraining grace. It's his blessing. It's a beautiful part of our sanctification. Which means, which means, God sends us grace through people. It was a person who came to me. It wasn't a vision or a dream. It wasn't me just reading my Bible coming to that conclusion, although God can illuminate things to us from his word for sure. But he often uses people to come to us. I had a, uh, I have a friend, a sister in Christ, who went through a rough go and uh, is now just questioning the church altogether. He's wondering, what do we even go to church for? Why do we even go to church? It's such a mess. And honestly, when we had that conversation not too long ago, I was totally feeling her. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've been spending like way too many hours at home going, man, I'm just going to China. Done. Packing up the kids. (laughs) Ni hao, let's go. (laughs) We'll learn the rest on the fly, man. I mean, it's just so, it's so hard to be in relationships with people. It is so hard to, you know, to trudge through Uh, Not only just my own sin, but the sin of other people and the misunderstandings and the hurt feelings and the way that Satan twists that around. It's so hard to sit in that sometimes. You just want to cut. But if we do, what we're doing is we're separating ourselves from God's people. We're separating ourselves from the wisdom of older, wiser people in the church that we congregate with. That's why we believe strongly in a multi-generational church model. We don't want to be just all millennials in the church. We want to have a range of people who have lived life and just know stuff you don't know from any other way but making a complete mess of it and coming to like a scraping halt on the tarmac, standing up and going, whoa, (laughs) okay. Don't do that again. Now let me tell you about it, you know? That's why our community groups, especially, we didn't try to separate our community groups in terms of age or stage of life. We put it together in terms of generations so that we would have older people with us helping us along the way, being God's restraining grace and wisdom to us in the church, you know? Look, if you're left with your own peer group, if we're left with our own peer group eventually... You're going to find yourself alone at the coffee shop wondering what happened. I ain't kidding. I mean, I get people calling me. I'm by myself at the coffee shop. I don't know what happened. Come on, come back to church. 
Come to church. Come on. It's okay. We'll work through this. It's going to be all right. So that God uses people to send His restraining grace to us. But what's important is, what does God say to us? When the Holy Spirit is working, listen. Listen how it's done. Look at what Abigail says. Listen to what God does and says to us when He gets our attention. That's the last part, is that God sends restraining grace through promises. Abigail's speech in this section is just astonishingly beautiful. Uh, And it's layers of beauty. And it shows us how God uses restraining grace to strengthen us. He doesn't come with law or threat. He comes with gospel. The first layer... First layer is real warnings. Abigail says to him, you know, the Lord is restraining you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hands so you won't have grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for working salvation yourselves. Those are real things. He's really warning them, her, him against. Um, and it's all in the terms of it, it, you'll, you'll experience guilt. You'll have grief. Your conscience will be grieved, but never in the terms of and God will spit you out of his mouth, which is what we always expect to hear. None of that. Second layer is Abigail is, speaks in prophecy and promise. Abigail is a prophetess. Listen to what she says. Uh, first, she gives just encouragement. She gives the promise of kingship again to David. Verse 30, and when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, she reassures him of God's promise. Now this is the third time in a row we've heard this, right? First Jonathan comes to Saul in the middle of the desert and reaffirms him and strengthens him by reaffirming the promises that he knows to be true. And then even Saul himself, God turns Saul's heart and Saul himself reinforces, reaffirms the promises that David will be king, that God will do all these things that he's promised to do for him. And now, here we have Abigail saying the same thing over and over again. God's speaking these reaffirmations, these promises of what he is doing for us and will do for us. And we have the same thing. That's why we come to church every week. That's why we do the liturgy the way we do it. Every week, God is reaffirming His promises to us, your sins are forgiven. You are my adopted children. You have been cleansed from this world. You absolutely belong to me. You are sitting with me at my table and you will be with me forever in paradise. Because we need to hear that over and over and over again so that that becomes the filter through which we look at the problems of life. Second promise uh, or prophecy that, that, that Abigail gives is, is uh, in verse 28. She says, For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Same terminology that the prophet Nathan uses to assure David of the, what we call the Davidic covenant. God promises David that through his descendants the Messiah will come. That forever there will be one of his descendants on the throne of Israel. That God will make him a sure house. And here is Abigail Years ahead of the prophet Nathan prophesying that same thing. This is the first mention of it. That's crazy. That's awesome. <laughs> and the third thing that she promises, the third thing she promises him is, is life. Look at verse 29. 
The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. That's some literary beauty. Do you hear what she just said? When she said sling out is from the hollow of a sling, what do you think David thought about? Remember that Goliath thing? Remember when I like overcame you with the power of the Spirit and you marched in in the power of the Spirit and, and we did this crazy thing together? That's still happening. I'm still with you. We got this. And, uh, and then he says, when he says bound in the bundle of the living, that's, really, that's like a Hebrew terminology talking about being bound up in the book of life. It's the same kind of terminology as the book of life that we see in Revelation. He's got, she, Abigail, as a prophetess, is reaffirming to David, God has you. You are in covenant with him. Your name is written in the book of life. No one can, no one can erase that. You are absolutely safe. There's nothing to fear and nobody's going to snatch you out of my hand. And the third layer is the best part. Uh, the third layer is the promise of Christ. Uh, most, of you, most of you have heard the name Ed Clowney, or maybe some of you haven't. He's a was a professor uh, who really pioneered and really was, was instrumental in speaking about Christ-centered preaching, meaning that we take seriously what Jesus said in Luke 24, that everything from Moses and the prophets, all the stories in the Old Testament talk about Jesus. Jesus saying, all of those stories say something about me, give an echo of who I am, uh, a symbol of what, I've go- what I'm going to do, every story throughout the text. And one day, his daughter, Rebecca Clowney, and I had this long conversation about who was the Christ figure in the David and Abigail story. Look at, what, look at what all these echoes. Look at all these echoes that Abigail does. She puts herself in harm's way, not only to save Nabal, but to save David and all his men and to guarantee the messianic line going forward. Uh, she brings an offering to appease the wrath of David of bread and wine. Uh, she pleads with David, on me alone be the guilt, O Lord. She asks for the guilt to be placed upon her. Uh, she speaks words of healing, of wisdom, of prophecy, and a promise of eternal life. And then one of the deepest and most beautiful displays of the reflection of Jesus in all the Old Testament, she says, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Look at all those things. Why does God do that? What is he trying to tell us? He's trying to let us know. How do, we, how do we know for sure that those promises are for us? How do we know for sure that we're in God's covenant? How do we know for sure that all God has spoken to us, the promises that he makes to us every week in the liturgy and through his word are true? How do we know that we are bound up in the word of life? How do we know that no one will ever snatch us out of his hands. What do we do? Do we look to ourselves? Do we look to ourselves as coalition generals, victorious over huge sloths of our sin? That ain't going to work. But what we can do is look to Jesus and the echoes of him that God gives us in this story, that he put himself in harm's way to save us. 
He offered himself up as a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. And we celebrate that every week in this supper, bread and wine. He took all of our guilt upon himself. He speaks words of healing and wisdom and revelation and promise to us. And he has shown himself the character of God. The beauty of the character of God is such that he has presented himself to us as a servant. He washed the feet of his disciples to show us that God's character is humble and beautiful and safe and that all of his promises are true because of what Jesus did on the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, We love you because you first loved us, Lord. We are dim in our vision. We are living in the twilight of a sinful and fallen world. Our affections are dull. Our intellect... uh, is dull. Our will is affected by the power of sin. And we are, Lord, as in trench warfare, gaining ground, losing it, gaining ground, losing it, Lord. But you have given us all of these beautiful things, the the means of grace. You've given us prayer. You've given us your word. You've given us the word preached. You've given us the Lord's Supper. You've given us fellowship. You've given us restraining grace, all of these things so that we would have our eyes not on ourselves in the trench, but our eyes on Jesus and all of his beauty. And when we do that, Lord, you give us the eyes of faith and we can know that even though we're here, even though it's hard, we can know that we are safe because you have taken hold of us and you promise not to let us go. So Lord, help us to understand that your love and kindness to us is to draw us in, not for punishment, but for protection. Lord, help us to understand that you send restraining grace through people and through promises to encourage us and strengthen us. Help us to understand how much you love us so that we will stick close to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.